Hey lovelies, before we get started, I wanted to let you know that this episode is brought to you by Schmoozy. That's S-H-M-U-Z-Y. After I publish each episode of Be Impactful, I get messages, emails, and comments with your feedback, and I love it so much, but it's a bit helter-skelter, and there's no way for you to talk to each other. That's where Schmoozy comes in. Schmoozy is a new mobile social media app where you can listen to the entire library of this podcast as well as share your thoughts in our episode forum. Those forums are really the best part. Think of them as a comment section under the episode. Schmoozy also allows you to explore other public content and forums and chat with your private network and friends and family, kind of like WhatsApp. I've partnered with my friends at Schmoozy to give away a $100 gift card to my site, impactfashionnyc.com. All you need to do to enter is join my community over on Schmoozy. Download the app, then follow my feed, listen to an episode, or join a forum, and you're one step closer to browsing to your heart's content. The winner will be announced Monday, February 15th, so if you're listening to this anytime before then, you can still enter. I've put a link to my page in Schmoozy in the show notes. Swipe up on the cover art to go directly there, and man, do I hope you win. Enjoy the show. From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. I'm Rifki Itzkowitz, and on today's show, I talk with a holistic nutritionist and podcast host about her career. She shares the simple questions that spurred her life pivot, the process of finding her strength in nutrition education, and what goes into her podcast, Let My People Eat. Jill Sharfman's voice may be familiar to you. Together with Dr. Andrea Moskowitz on the Let My People Eat podcast, she shares valuable information regarding our bodies. But like so many people, there's much more than meets the eye to Jill. So while I thought we were going to have a health discussion, and don't worry, we do get there eventually, the road there is honestly way more fun. As a little kid, I was actually very shy. I remember like my mom would introduce me to people and I'd like hide behind people's skirts. And when I tell my kids that now that I was very shy, they can't believe it because I'm the type of person that I will talk to anybody, even a stranger in a supermarket. If I see them like looking at two different products, I'll have to chime in and go, that one's better. And I'm constantly embarrassing them, (laughs) my children, (laughs) maybe the people I talk to also, because I am... I am more outgoing than I was. I'm still shy at parties and big groups and gathering, but definitely not the way I was as a child. Yeah, my husband likes to say that I'm aggressively friendly. Mm-hmm. That like, yeah. I, that, that, yeah, I will go up to someone and be like, this is what you need to do. This is how it's going to be. And we are now best friends. Right. That's, that's my approach to the world. Um, for someone who might not know what you do, uh, can, you, can, can you tell everyone what it is that you do? Sure. Yeah. Um, I am a holistic nutritionist. I'm board certified. This is actually my second career. Um, And what a holistic nutritionist does is they treat the whole person. So if somebody comes to a a holistic nutritionist and says, hey, I would like to lose weight, let's say, which is a primary reason someone may visit a nutritionist, a a standard nutritionist may just look at their food and prescribe a meal plan and send them on their way. A holistic nutritionist has a lot of questions that they ask. How are you sleeping? What are your stress levels? Because all those things may implicate you know, how well they are able to 
manage their daily lives. So we look at hormones, uh, we look at just a myriad of things. So that's, that's the primary difference. Holistic means whole. And so we look at the whole person with whatever, whatever issue they come to somebody with, that's what we do. Right. What was your first career? So my first career was advertising. I worked for one of the largest advertising agencies in the world. It's called Gray Advertising. Um, and uh, I fell into that career quite by mistake. When I graduated college, I, I didn't know what I was going to do. I had a major, a double major in economics and psychology. And I went into PR for a while. I was working in a department store in the public relations department. So I was managing the women who would go out on the floor and spray you with perfume or the in-store fashion shows, or if we had a soap opera star come and sign autographs, that's what I was doing. It was a lot of fun. I loved it. I was living in Pittsburgh at the time with my family and I was a young woman and I decided it was time to move to New York because I was interested in getting married and the pool in New York was much bigger than the pool in Pittsburgh. And uh, I ended up working at Bloomingdale's for a little while also. Um, and then I found this job in advertising, um, doing media planning, which is something I didn't even know existed. And media planners generally decide where the advertising goes. And I worked on Revlon. What does that mean? Like deciding like so, if they should advertise in print or radio or TV? Exactly. So cool. is it in a magazine? In which magazine? Is it in Vogue? Is it in Glamour? Is it in Cosmo? Um, are you on television? If you're on television, which programs are you on on television? Um, do you advertise on Friends? Do you advertise on soap operas? Where your target audience is? And that, that was the job in the media department. How to spend the money and where to allocate it best. A lot of that now is totally computerized. Um, whereas before we were, we did a lot of things manually with calculators, <laughs> um, but now everything is uh, really done. They feed the information to computer, the computer spits it out, um, but I loved it. It was fun. I worked on CoverGirl and Pantene, which were some of the agency's biggest you know, accounts there. I had. $70 million to spend. I was wined and dined <laughs> by lots of magazines and, uh, you know, TV stations who are all fighting for a piece of that pie. Um, I, they took us on trips. I was on yachts. Uh, we were on, went to Broadway shows. Um, they just really, it was a great time to be in advertising before they changed some of the rules and didn't allow people to do that. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> But uh, it was, you know, we made no money. Uh, when I took the job, my father, I told him what I was making, and I'll share it with you. Uh, I was making $11,500 a year. At what year job. was that in? Okay, that was in 1986. Okay, hold on. <laughs> I'm very curious what that is in 2021 Today, dollars. Okay, I'm Googling so this. Convert while you're figuring that out, my father had said to me, I can't believe I sent you to college to make that amount of money. And I had taken a pay cut after I left Bloomingdale's, but I, I wanted to do that. And um, what was the amount? 11 what? 11.5. 11, 11.5. Five. Five. Mm -hmm. So people used to joke at Gray that your parent, like your parents who put you through school, they put you through Gray because you really <laughs> couldn't, you couldn't survive on that amount of money in New York City. 
Um, I was, for, you know, for the record, that's $27,000 today, which okay. you cannot live on in New York yeah, City. You can't live on in New York City. I mean, I started in a basement apartment in Queens when I moved first from Pittsburgh to New York. I, my, I was living with my grandmother and one day I came home, she had a copy of the Jewish press and she had circled a roommate and she goes, here, I found your roommate. <laughs> <laughs> Did you actually end up living with that person? I lived with that person for five years and we got married three weeks apart. We were wow. super, super fortunate. Um, she was from Muncie and we just connected in that first basement apartment. And one day I remember a few months later, we looked at each other and we said, we should move to the city. And we did, we moved to um, the Cambridge house, which was a residential hotel. It's on 86th street. It's not there anymore. I mean, I mean it's there, the building's there, but it's no longer a residential hotel. And we each paid, we had two bedrooms, two other roommates, and we each paid like 300 $50 a month, which I could afford on that right. salary. Um, but uh, yeah, it was, it was a good time. You know, it was uh, late eighties, early nineties being in New York city. Um, but as I progressed and I was with the company for 14 years, including when I moved to LA later on, um, I remember having to loan some of the assistants who then were working for me money to get them to the next paycheck because wow. they, they needed they needed that extra help to get them to the finish lines. Right. So, um, <clears throat> yeah. It's, it's so funny. Maybe it's just because I'm, I mean, I, I don't know that much about the like advertising firm industry okay. and all of that, but I think of like Mad Men and like that, which is obviously okay. a totally different set in a totally different time. And I would presume that like John Hammond Mad Men is not living paycheck to paycheck. <laughs> right. So, so here's the interesting thing. First of all, Mad Men was based on gray. So, okay. When they later on are in their, they're in the new offices and they have the orange doors. Mm -hmm. I remember the orange doors. They later did paint them gray, but watching that show was like watching part of my life. If I could tell you how many times I was crying in the bathroom, like Peggy, mm -hmm. because my boss <laughs> said something, did something, and he liked me. <laughs> I was oh. one of the fortunate <laughs> ones. But I remember being in the bathroom crying like Peggy. So watching Mad Men was, even though it was a different time, um, there were still, you know, parallels and things that would happen in the everyday workforce that I definitely could relate to there. Um, so yes, he wasn't because he was a creative director. And by the way, right. the creative people always got paid definitely more than the media. But as I progressed and because I was with the company for so long, um, when I left, I was a senior vice president. I was making six figures at that time. And I, right. I, I thank my husband that he did let me walk away from that job mm -hmm. at some point to be able to stay home and be a full-time mom. Um, that was so, going to be my next question. What, what, you know, what, what, what caused the shift? What made you leave? Um, so we, I was with the company in New York for 10 years and then my husband was transferred with his position out to Los Angeles. And I was fortunate enough that my company moved me too. And I was working for Warner brothers out in the Burbank office. So the Batman franchises, um, also, it was the time of um, the WB Network, so we launched Buffy the Vampire Slayer, uh, we launched Seventh Heaven, Dawson's Creek, you know, all that, that show, the WB doesn't exist anymore, it's now part of the CW, but um, I was fortunate enough that they moved me out there, and at some point, my girls, I had my daughter Ariana, she was four, 
I just had Gabrielle and I remember pulling into the parking lot to drop them off, oh, Ariana off at school and just crying and being like, I didn't want to be away. I wanted to be with my kids. And the job was just, it wasn't fun anymore. <laughs> it was, it was, I, I, I also don't think I like the entertainment side, the Warner Brothers side, as much as I love the beauty side. Working for CoverGirl and Pantene was very fun, very glamorous. Um, the entertainment was a, a different animal altogether. And different in I, what way? Different in that when I was working on Procter & Gamble, which owned Pantene and CoverGirl, um, there was a lot of long-term thinking with Procter & Gamble you planned out a year in advance, you knew what was coming, you had to change things as you went, but long-term thinking, I'm a long-term thinker. When I got to the entertainment side, it was very much like, we need to get on air tonight and go quickly and find somewhere, get us on a traffic report, we have a show that we need to promote right now. It was very like fly by the seat of your pants, which is not how I work, I don't work well like that i'm a much better is it that way because of the way that the industry has to be because you know things are changing so quickly and because shows get completed pretty close to when they air yeah it, it was more reactive it was it was definitely more reactive and things were changing a lot faster like if covergirl was going to launch a new lipstick or a new foundation or, or something they knew about it way 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 in advance and we planned for it sometimes it got delayed sometimes the print copy wasn't available i remember calling the printing press or getting a call from from one of the magazine editors going uh can you move it out here because somebody just pulled out those things did happen but it was rare whereas with the entertainment side there was just always constant last minute shifts that the clients were doing. Oh, let's move that show out and put the show in and, and into the, so it was, it was really, um, it was just a very, very different experience. And I found that I wasn't enjoying it as much anymore. Like I said, I was fortunate enough that um, I did have the ability then to stay home and, and, and be with my kids. Um, I know not everybody has that option. So how long did you, did you stay home for? So um, I was home with the kids and I remember going, okay. So everything was done by like 1030, let's say, you know, I took care of the house. I made dinner, whatever. And I remember going, okay, what am I supposed to do now? I mean, I've been working for 15 years, long hours. I mean, you know, I, there were times I was at the advertising agency till 2am. Um, you know, we, we worked hard and we worked very long for eleven thousand dollars a year. <laughs> might I remind you? Um, I, I'm a worker. I like to, you know, get things done and um, lists and all that kind of stuff. And I remember talking to a friend of mine who she had worked for me and she had stayed home, and uh, she said to me, you, "You kind of have to approach it like your job. You know, you have to have your schedule. You because that's how I work. You have to plan. You have to look ahead and see what you want to do. And then that was kind of like a light bulb moment for me. I'm like, oh, okay. I I just you know I can't just sit here and wait for things to wash over me and have ideas. Like, who am I going to entertain this week? When am I going to the market? Like, I have to approach it in that same systematic way that I did approach my job. I know that might sound weird to people, but that that was what worked for me that was what worked for her because we were quite similar in our approach to things so i was home until my youngest 
was bat mitzvah age. And I could see the writing on the wall that, okay, she's gonna go to high school, she's gonna graduate, then what's my, what's my job? What, what am I doing? And you, I realized- your, your position was getting phased out in the company. <laughs> correct, correct. So I needed to look at, sit down and go, okay, what am I going to do? Because I wanna do things, I'm not, you know, necessarily going to be a lady who lunches and goes shopping all the time and, you know, plays tennis. I, you know, I like to do all those things, but that wasn't my path and what I was going to do. How so, long had you been home at the point when you realized that, um, um, that you needed, that you needed to be probably, a little bit more forward thinking? It was probably about 11 years. That's, oh, a, and that's, that's a chunk a of time. time. Well, so then the other thing I started doing was like, okay, I have, um, I have abilities what can I do with this? So I started working, doing PTA things. Like okay. I was like, okay, let me devote my time to raising money for the school and, you know, those kind of things. What, what was a, a rude awakening for me was that I was coming from a position where I had maybe 20 people working for me. And when I told them to do something, they went and did it <laughs> and they <laughs> delivered. When you're working with the PTA and you have moms, they don't work like that. I'm gonna, yeah, I was just going to say, I don't, I'm not seeing, I'm not yeah. seeing PTAs being like, okay, Jill, what should we do? And then just doing it. Doing it. Like, I'm right. sure the mom politics were there. Yeah. yeah. And I was just like, wait a minute, but you said you would have the, the recipes for the cookbook we were working on, you know, here at this certain amount of time and you didn't do it. And what you find, and I'm sure a lot of people have found this with PTA is that there are like five women who do everything and they do it all the time. Yep. <laughs> and then the rest of us, maybe are just like the hanger honors and <clears throat> excuse me, pop on when we need to do something. But um, so that, that was not really working for me. I was having a hard time doing that. Um, but yeah, she was, I remember it was after her bat mitzvah and I was like, okay, what's next for Jill? What, what am I going to do next with my life? And uh, it, that was a hard challenge because I couldn't go back to advertising. First of all, the business had changed dramatically. We now had um, internet and streaming and there was a lot more um, going on that I was not well versed in. I, I guess I could have learned it, but, um, and also the job is a very service oriented job. You know, you have to be available a lot, long hours. Um, so I was trying to figure out what should I do? And somebody said to me, what are you passionate about? I'm like, I, I don't know what I'm passionate about. Um, I'm not you know, there are people who are like musicians or maybe someone like yourself, you have a creativity there that you need to express, um, you know, fashion, things like that. I said, I don't know. And she said to me, what do you spend your spare time doing? I said, well, I love being in the kitchen. I love cooking. I love reading health journals and research and nutrition types of things. She said, well, then that's what you're passionate about because wherever you devote your free time, you could be doing anything else during that free time. But if you are choosing that free time to be in the kitchen cooking, experimenting, or reading health and nutrition journals, then that's where your passion lies. That's a big, big statement. Yeah, um, that's actually, you know, I, that's, that's a really 
interesting way of going about figuring out what it is you know i guess in a in a very loose way you could define passion as what you want to spend you know if you could do anything what would you be doing and looking at what you're already doing when you can do anything it's kind of a really great shortcut to get there it is yeah it is and i, I tell this to a lot of people because i think it's it's a good way to figure out what what excites you what what right. you want to be doing um, so she said, you should go into nutrition or something along those lines. So I started doing my research, um, and seeing, looking at programs and I wanted something that had a physical school location. Um, and, uh, I started, I started, I found a program, I Bowman college, um, and it was a holistic nutrition program, which was something also I was interested in because I did want that full um, experience. And I went back to school for four years. Um, oh, you went back to school. Mm -hmm. You did I not just do a school. course. You went back to school. Oh, no. I went My back mom to did school. That also. Yeah. I went back to school for four years. I had 700 hours in nutrition training. Um, just, you know, a typical doctor has Le at the most 20, but usually way less than 20 hours of nutrition training. Wow. Um, I did field work, um, case studies. Um, if you don't I, mind my asking, yeah. how old were you at that point? Um, okay, I'm going to have to do the math. You're going to have to give me a minute. I was, I believe, in my early 40s. Okay. Yeah, I think I was in my early 40s. Um, I went back to school. I did the homework, I did the research papers, and it was hard because uh, there was biochemistry that I had to take. Um, there was a lot of math involved, um, but I loved it. I loved it. I had a mentor who, you know, they assigned to you who I, she was wonderful, um, guided me, asked me questions. Um, I am a student, so going back to school for me was was something I was excited about and I enjoyed. It was funny though, because my kids would be doing homework and I'd be doing homework too. And I'd have my note cards and my flashcards and be, you know, study everything. Um, and then I studied for a board exam, which took me about four months. And I took the board exam and uh, which was super hard and I passed. And then I was like, okay, went to school for four years, board certified. I guess I'm supposed to open a practice. But what I'd realized, because that's what we're trained to do, we're trained to do one-on-one -on -one counseling. What I'd realized was I don't have that therapy gene where, you know, somebody who's in that space uh, is very, um, they're able to connect, build the relationship, be patient with people, and help them get to their goals. And what I'd realized through doing the work that they have you do in school is that was not where um, my strengths lied. My strengths lie more like the bigger picture, mass education, doing presentations. That's what I that's that's what I'm better at. And I I know that. And so I was like, okay, what am I doing? What am I doing? I just spent all this time and money. <laughs> And yes, I have a lot more knowledge that I can share with my family and friends. Uh, and people do ask me all the time and I'm always happy to answer questions and help people. And I was like, okay, now what? And I was sitting with uh, Dr. Andrea Moskowitz, who's my co-host in Shul. And we were at the kiddish table, this was before Corona. Um, and there were like 10 women sitting there and all the women started talking 
and health issues came up and Andrea and I were answering them together. And I remember getting up to go to the ladies room and it was like an epiphany. I'm like, Andrea and I should do a podcast. And this was, we actually, I came up with the idea three years ago. So this was early on, you know, there are obviously podcasts happening, but it wasn't the proliferation of podcasts that we have today. And I just, it came to me, Andrew and I should do a podcast. And it took us a year to get it up and running. We recorded, you know, like 10 episodes in advance, built a website, you know, had copy, um, put it all together. But um, yeah, this is two years ago, we actually went live on air. And, uh, and I feel like I found my calling because now I can talk to a mass group of people and, and provide them with information. Yeah, and that is for anyone who doesn't know the Let My People Eat podcast, which is pretty fantastic. And what I love about it is this holistic aspect um, of your training really does come through in the not only the range of guests that you have, but the way the the way that you approach your guests specific specialties you know you're always looking at things from a from a much wider perspective which i always find to be it's it's a really interesting way to go about you know talking about these health topics and um and all of that and it's it, it's it's a really great space to be inhabiting what is something that you have learned while doing the podcast that kind of surprised you um i guess i always knew there was a hunger out there for people wanting to, you know, do I do the keto diet? Should I be gluten-free? Should I be vegan? I mean, that was the, the whole podcast was predicated on that, but that people really are hungry for that, literally hungry for that information. <laughs> um, and, and they want the answers and they feel totally bombarded by all the information that is constantly coming their way every day intermittent fasting is what's in uh, juicing is what's in every and that they really want somebody to hold their hand and help them through it i have learned that podcasting is very hard work um i i you know thought you just grabbed your microphone and you started talking but there's so much more to it than that there's procuring the guests there's the editing aspect there's making it entertaining and interesting and then the promotion of the podcast um so i learned a lot about a field i knew absolutely nothing about um and i i really do enjoy it i love having dr moskowitz there because she is a western medically trained doctor who is open to more of the holistic health lifestyle but she still brings that gravitas and that you know, authority, like we just uh, taped an episode about thyroid health, you know, and she'll explain, this is what the thyroid is, this is what it does. Um, so I really, I like having the yin and the yang balance between, you know, our two approaches and how we meet in the middle. And we don't always agree, which is what makes the podcast interesting too. Right. Um, so. That, that, that's always where things get fun. Can you, you know, can you give me an example of a, a situation where, you know, uh, Dr. Moskowitz coming from a more westernized medicine perspective and you coming from a holistic area, a uh, disagree, you know, uh, an example when that happened. So um, I think it generally happens when uh, we talk about supplements, um, you know, as a holistic nutritionist, I always believe food first, you get your nutrition from food. But unfortunately, a lot of people are not eating the right foods um, and they do need some supplementation along the way. 
And because supplements have not been studied that well, maybe as much as regular medication, because big pharma does um, pay for all the research and the studies, you know, there'll be some times that maybe I'll say something or suggest a supplement that I know from either personal experience or from the research that I've read might do the job. And Andrea's like, I, I don't know if we should go there and say that. So I would say that would be the area where we sometimes uh, get into trouble. Also, we've had situations where guests um, have brought up things that might help with uh, autism in children. And I know that Andrea is very careful about how she approaches that part because she doesn't she doesn't want people running out and doing the next big thing that they should be working with their doctor and exploring things and and getting more information so uh, you know sometimes sometimes there are areas where i see her she's in the studio and she's going like that she's shaking her head back and forth at me and trying to like say stop saying what you're saying um and sometimes it will sometimes i want to edit it out sometimes we'll leave it it really depends on the topic yeah, and I think that also, you know, it's a it's a very fine line to walk because you are, you're not really giving medical advice, but it is a, it's medical-ish, I guess you could say. There is a medical aspect to what it is that you're talking about, and there's a level of responsibility there, especially with, you know, she is a doctor, um, and and you don't want, you want to be mindful of that level of responsibility, but at the same time, you can't be accountable for every person listening to your podcast making medical decisions without consulting with their own specific doctor in their own specific case. Correct. Yes. And and we are very careful about that. And we do make the disclaimer, um, but we do get into things and hopefully enough that people will go ahead and talk to a doctor or talk to a dietitian or nutritionist to find out more information. Our whole goal is to demystify. So bring things down to a level that the layperson can understand and then they can take that information and go with it and do what they want. That's, that's the whole purpose of the podcast, to make things understood and to answer the questions that we anticipate people would ask. Yeah, and and you both do that really, really well. It's a really enjoyable listen. It's also, it's I find that sometimes when you're dealing with heavy topics or just big topics, you know, science um, is something that I happen to love, but it can be really complicated to explain sometimes. Uh, and you, you two do a really good job of breaking it down and making those nuggets really digestible um, and really easy to explain. I wanna I wanna talk a little bit about um, about diet culture and, and dieting for a little bit. I I mean you you know you know all about me and you know where um, where I stand on these kinds of things. But also it's it's int- you know there's so much research that points to diets don't work and that they um, and that the weight cycling is more harmful than just being overweight and um, and all of the harm that can come from pursuing this intentional weight loss um, and at the same time um there is still a hesitation to say that you know every anyone you know health at every size is a little bit of a harder pill to swallow i think um and i'm just curious what your take on that is um coming approaching it from a a you know a, a holistic nutrition perspective diet culture is such a big conversation right now and the way we approach it as from a holistic health standpoint is that if somebody is getting the right amount of sleep and they're managing their stress and they're eating lots of fruits and vegetables and whole unprocessed foods and they will become healthy 
and weight loss will probably be a part of that. So if somebody comes to us and says, you know, I would like to lose weight, as I mentioned before, we look at their entire picture because we don't want to concentrate just on that one part of it. We want to help treat the whole person. And to me, that's what health is. Um, I, if somebody does want to lose weight and they do it properly, meaning they do it with the help of someone, they don't cut out entire food groups, they're not engaging in disordered eating behavior, then that's fine. Let them go ahead and pursue that path. But let's look at it in totality and how to make that part of a health discussion rather than a weight loss discussion. Yeah, I think that also the, you see, for me, where health at every size gets, I think to me, and, and I'm not an expert on this, I am just, I am an expert on loving yourself, but I'm certainly not any kind of medical expert. Um, and for me, when I hear health at every size and, and based on my understanding of the, the terms and the movement, it's basically just that you cannot determine whether or not someone is healthy by looking at them, that there are, there are incredibly unhealthy thin people and there are healthy, you know, what we would call fat people. Um, and you know, in general, approaching things holistically kind of makes sense to me. Um, I I also think that in general, when we talk about nutrition and um, you, and and just that aspect of things on a on like a more general scale, I know people, and I also just know for myself, I eat pretty healthy. I'm not gonna tell you that I'm like a health nut, but I eat pretty healthy, and I you know move my body on a pretty regular ish basis. And I, and I know that I will like my resting weight, I guess you could say I'm, I'm, I'm going to be like a size 10, 12. That's just what, that's just what I am. Um, and not, not to say that that's, you know, absurdly large or anything like that. Um, but I think that just understanding that for some people, you know, achieving that size two, four, six status is just not possible. The only time that I've ever been below a size eight was when I severely restricted um, the amount that I eat and severely over-exercised and I was incredibly unhappy. Um, and that, you, recognizing that there are more worthy things than just being small, that's where it kind of falls in for me. Right, so yes, and, and those were very dangerous behaviors, obviously, that you were engaging in. Um, the issues that I see right now are what's going on in the Shadduch world. And this was, we did an episode of this on the podcast because eating disorders within our community have accelerated tremendously. And it's, it's been attributed to the fact that a lot of the guys out there, some, not all, um, wanted small girl. They want a tiny girl, they want a size two, they want to see a full length picture of her. And this is contributing a lot to the surge in eating disorders that we are seeing. And eating disorders are very, very serious. Um, people do die. And um, I, I feel like we should be doing more in our communities to try and prevent this from happening. And it seems to just be getting worse and worse. Um, so yes, engaging in behaviors like uh, excessive exercise or cutting food food tremendously. I remember when I was in high school, um, all the girls in the class were doing the Scarsdale diet. What is <laughs> that? I've never heard of that. Scarsdale diet was like just grapefruit and crackers. Oh, that <laughs> okay. sounds really sad. 
Uh, it was sad. Um, I did not need to lose weight in high school. If anything, maybe I needed to gain a little weight. And I did the diet because everybody else was doing it. I did it for three days. I lost five pounds. And I was miserable because I was starving. Wow, that is not good for you. It was not good. But it was like, I, it was the thing. It was, it was what? When it I was, was at Atkins. Uh-huh. Okay. Like yeah. The girls who were doing the hardcore Atkins would show up with like I remember there was this one kid who always had like a a can of tuna like a not a can. Um she would buy like from the bagel store the tuna fish like like salads or whatever, but it would there was no mayo or anything. It might it might as well have just been straight out of the can. Um and she would and she would eat an entire like container of that and um and some berries. She always had like like a, a box of, of the berries and that was what she would eat for lunch all the time. Yeah. Um yeah, and I think that also, you know, going back to the to the dating world aspect of it, because I 100% agree with you that in in specifically this, you know, the orthodox dating system, which is weirdly formalized, the easiest way to describe this is that it's exactly, it's pretty similar to Fiddler on the Roof, except not in Anatevka. It's like Fiddler on the Roof pretty much nailed it um, when it comes to how our dating systems work. And in those situations, it you know, that, those are the things that I'm actually quite hopeful for, because I think that now the more that we talk about how, you know, pursuing small at all costs is not the healthy thing to do, and it's not a good thing for you. And the more we're open about that, and the more we talk about that, our, you know, eating disorders are something that affect women, I think, more than men. Yes, um, true. That okay, so I'm going to take your but, but, seal of approval right. on that. But the more that we talk about this, not only with our daughters, but with our families in general, and the more that it's out there in the world, then our sons hear that also. And they, um, you know, there, there are better things that you can be in life than small. There are better things, you know, you can be kind and caring and compassionate and smart and badass. And you can, I would rather be all of those things before small. And I think the more that we work to, you know, start starting in our own communities and um, and in our own families and making that, just making that point that, you know, you can do so much more than just be small um, is that that's where I think the real change starts. Right. Yes, I, I, I agree. Um, I, I get the impression that some of these, the guys who are just saying, oh, no, she's, she's, you know, not a size two next are not looking at the meadows, the good qualities that they should be looking at and what's going to make a good wife. Yeah, they're making an incredibly superficial decision. It's also right. just part of the way that the system works is that because because you aren't, you know, you most likely you're not going to have had casual relationships with, um, you know, with members of the opposite sex, then you're just not going to be, it, it does turn into a, you know, I used to call it the their stats. You know, he's he's this old. He's going to this school. He's going to go into this career. He lives in this neighborhood. He his his parents do X, Y and Z. It just becomes, you know, like a matching game where you're just you're not. It's really difficult to look at people because you don't know the people. And that becomes that becomes so much trickier. And yeah, if you're going to be superficial about it, then you're going to get superficial results and you're gonna you know you're gonna get set up on superficial dates with superficial people and have superficial marriages and um and for some people it works you know not everyone wants craves or needs that deep loving relationship i personally do and i'm and i'm very happy that i'm in one of those um but it's it's something that you know it's something that if we approach it on a societal level then it fixes itself at a societal level yeah I mean, unfortunately, we are seeing it in men too. I know it is primarily women, but 
there are men now in our community who are also experiencing this. And unfortunately, the divorce rate has gotten very high in this younger group. And I think personally, um, it can be attributed to the fact that maybe they're not looking for the right things when they get together. And uh, I'm just hoping that, that, like you said, the conversations around the girls and the, the sons uh, will change things. Um, I'm watching Bridgerton right now on Netflix. I want to start it. And they're going no through No spoilers. This, uh, no spoilers. <laughs> but the whole thing is predicated on these young women being introduced into, into society to find a mate. And a lot of these same topics, I know that's all fictionalized, but that come up, you know, are are also coming up in the show. And I think, I think it's so interesting. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. It's, it's definitely something that I want to get my hands on um, yeah. and that I need to, you know, find a weekend and plow it. It's that. good. It's yeah. good. Um, I just want to also say you were talking about healthy at any size. Um, that is also a very hard concept um, because there are some people who definitely need to lose weight and I don't want them kidding themselves maybe because the blood work looks good and comes back that they may not have an issue in a few years. Um, and that, like you said, try and eat well, try and move, try and have a good attitude. Um, all those things are gonna help, but there are definitely people out there who not even for aesthetic reasons, but for medical reasons need to lose weight. And I think it's best if they work with somebody who can help them do that in a good, healthy way. Yeah. And I think that, you know, as, as, again, when it comes to any kind of medical advice, it's just important to speak with your own doctor and, um, you know, not be, don't make medical decisions based on what's popular, you know, do it based on what makes sense for you. And that's something that you can, you know, discuss with your own medical person and have, and have them give you the, um, you know, the direction that is good for you. This is just a little taste of kind of, of some of the fantastic conversations that you get into on the Let My People Eat podcast. It <laughs> yes. is it is it is a really great listen. Um, wherever you're listening to this, you can um, you can get Let My People Eat. Just search for it. It's a fantastic, fantastic show. If somebody wants to find you, Jill, where can they go? Um, they can find me on Instagram at Jill H. Scharfman. Um, you can also go to the Let My People Eat website. Um, please call, send emails, tell us topics that you would like us to cover. We love engaging. I love when I get an email from somebody who said, you know, I listened to your podcast and, and it really helped me, you know, make this change or do something. I, I love hearing back from the audience. Um, we're also on Facebook at the Let My People Eat podcast. Um, so you can find us there and we are on all streaming platforms as well. So Spotify, um, Apple podcast, you can find us to search, like Rifki said, Let My People Eat podcast. That's fantastic. Before we go, I want to ask you the question I ask everyone who comes on the show, and that is to you, Jill Sharfman, what does it mean to make an impact? Okay, so I knew this question was coming because I've listened to your podcast. <laughs> um, so my first instinctive reaction was make an impact. The easy answer is the podcast, because I can make an impact on so many people, maybe help answer questions. If there's even one person out there that I've helped, like um, when we do our breast cancer um, episodes and we talk about, um, you know, foods we can eat, myths versus facts, underwire bras, deodorant. Like if there's one person out there who I can help, that means a lot to me. But that was the easy answer. That's how I can make an impact through the podcast. 
so I looked up what does it make what does it mean to make an impact so it could be influencing others but it also is the collision of two things together right that's right. the impact um, and it reminded me of a saying one of my old bosses had is he's, he used to say to make an omelet you have to crack some eggs so meaning things can get messy we have to maybe make a mess sometimes we have to create a uh, little chaos but beautiful things can come from that so i just want to tell people don't be afraid to like maybe do what i did went back go back to school or like you're doing with your business you know trying to make changes and it doesn't always go well and it, it may not be easy but if you want that beautiful omelet at the end <laughs> you're gonna have to crack some eggs so Go ahead and, and, and do it. Make a mess and, and you might be really surprised where you end up. That is fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on today, Jill. I really Thank appreciate you. it. Thank you so much. You had a great time. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Jill, her links are in the show notes. There you'll also find links to the most perfect pleated skirt, the coziest scarf, and the most comfortable mask. Access all of that by swiping up on the cover art or going to impactfashionnyc.com. If you'd like to apply to advertise on the Be Impactful podcast, please send me an email, rifki at impactfashionnyc.com. To hear more episodes, be sure to subscribe. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help more people hear it, leave a review or a quick rating. They seriously make my day. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses, original music composed by Nissan Fetman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Rifki Itzgoods. Catch me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.myc. As always, here's to making an impact together. <laughs>